Welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn really whatever I want, whatever I'm curious about, and then I pass on all the best parts, not so briefly, turns out, <laughs> to you. Well, at least in this case. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Um, hold on there. There is no case in which I am brief. That is not in my uh, skill set. Okay, I mean, that's true. This is not exactly my first episode that turned from one part to... Two parts. I mean... Three parts. Three this parts. Is the third part. And the fourth part is coming soon? No. No. <laughs> this is what I wrote right here. This is part three, and it's the final part, I promise. Okay. This is all the things I could possibly have to tell you about mosquitoes. All of it. Okay. Except for this isn't really about mosquitoes. This is about parasites. Okay, but... Ones that mosquitoes give you, I assume. Yes, that part is. So we're about tying mosquitoes. it back to mosquitoes here. Okay, yeah, mosquitoes appear in this podcast several times, but mostly it's the parasites. Okay, well, how about you teach me something? All right. Um. So we're gonna start with something gross. I mean, it's parasites. A lot of them are gross. Yeah. Um. Fair enough. But this one's called. This condition is called myiasis. Okay. Myiasis is, myiasis. unlike almost everything else we've talked about, uh, something that's not primarily caused by mosquitoes. It's a... But they do also cause it. Yeah. Okay. It's like a minor contributor. Okay. That's why I'm going to start with it. We're going to start with like least to most relevant sure. and interesting, to be honest. <laughs> okay. Well, fine. Let's start there. Um, so myiasis is when... Someone gets infected, or an animal gets infected with a fly larva, um, which usually only happens in tropical and subtropical areas. Fly larva, meaning not like the mosquitoes larva? Okay. Like, well, a mosquito is a fly. Yes, a different fly. Right, okay. So, there are several ways for flies to transmit their larva to people, and just one of those is by basically, like, attaching it to a mosquito or other um, non-meiotic type of fly or tick or something like that. Okay. Um, other ways are like they just lay their eggs around a wound or a sore that a person has. Sure. And then the larvae just crawl right in there. Um, That's a fun some, way. some species, like bot fly larvae, like you've probably heard of bot flies, maybe screw worm flies. Yep. Those are the types of flies we're talking about here. Some can just get in through your skin if it's intact. They can just burrow right in there, which, again, is also gross. That's a little scary. Um, one type of fly in Africa lays its eggs on the ground or, like, damp clothing that's, like, hanging out to dry, you know, or, like, bed linens or whatever. And then when someone comes into contact with that, they just burrow right in there. Um, you know, you're laying in bed yeah. and larvae just burrow into your skin. It's cool. That's not gross at all. Um, so, <laughs> um, larvae... That go in through your skin, make these boil-like sores. They can also get in through your nose, cause nasal obstruction, severe irritation, death. Mm. You just throw in, that when one in there? In through your nose, yeah. Okay. Uh, they can enter your ears, and they mm. can use that route to get into your brain. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and they can enter through your eyes, which 
you can imagine is very painful and irritating. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, this is really gross. I would highly recommend no one looks at the pictures of my ISS because I regret everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, I have seen a lot of gross things. I took a whole course on parasitism and this is one of the worst things I've ever seen on the internet. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Um, Don't look it up. Right? I know that some of you are probably like, okay, I got it. Yeah, of course. That was not my intention, but, you know, have fun with that. Sorry to those people. Um, Flies in several genera may cause myosis in humans. So we have uh, Dermatobia hominis, which is the primary human bot fly. So Dermatobia fly eggs have been shown to be carried by over 40 different species of mosquitoes and something called muscoid flies, as well as one tick species okay so the female actually the female fly captures a mosquito like holds it attaches the eggs to its body and then like lets it go oh interesting okay catch and release program (laughs) exactly um so here's a few more and i'm gonna have fun saying these names okay cochleomaya hominivorax is the primary screw screw worm fly in the new world in the old world, the screwworm fly that mostly gets humans is called Chrysomaya beziana. Then, uh, Cordylobia anthropophagia infects humans regularly in Africa as well, and then flies in the genera Cuterabra, Ostris, and Wolfertia are mostly animal parasites, but they occasionally do infect humans. Okay. Um, there are more, but I'm not going to try to say any more names. Sure. These are just the most, the ones that it mostly happens with. Plus, you were, you know, pretty valiant in your speaking of those names. I mean, I did learn Latin a few times, but it still doesn't help when you're, no, it still doesn't help sometimes when you're in the heat of the moment. Sure. Um, so you treat myosis by literally getting the larvae out. Okay. Um, whether like physical that means, extraction. Yeah. So whether that means what sometimes they plug the breathing holes of the larvae with something like petroleum jelly and they wait till they stick their little heads out and get them out with some forceps. Yeah. Um, or they like will cut into the person with a scalpel and pull them out with forceps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then, you know, clean the wound. That's important. Keep I would think so. Yeah. Don't let any more fly larvae burrow into you. This is, again, sometimes there's these moments where I'm like, the place we live is really cold, and I don't love that. And then you hear things like this, and you're like, well, at least that can't happen here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Silver linings, right? Um, so, dirofilariasis is another parasitic disease mosquitoes can give humans. Again, it's not very common. Okay. Um, so, dirofilariasis is caused by small thread-like worms, you know, filaria. Anyways... Uh, in the genus Dirofilaria, and Dirofilaria is a genus of parasitic nematodes. So those are nematodes. roundworms. Yeah. Yes. I like nematode is fun to say. It is. I think that's the only reason why I remembered what it was. Because <laughs> I talk about parasites too much. Otherwise, too how much? would you know the name nematode? I don't think you qualify that as too much. <laughs> the right amount for me to remember. Ah, yay. Yeah. So Dirofilariasis is mainly a dog and cat disease. The okay. humans can become offended, affected, which is why. And offended too. Yeah, it's pretty offensive. Yeah. That's actually not that bad in humans. It's okay. not, it's not gross. It's is it like not worse deadly. in cats and dogs? Oh, way worse in cats okay. and dogs. All right. Well, I mean, at least we got the better end of that deal. Um, so one species, 
Dyrophilaria imitis is actually, so it originated in Asia, but now it's considered one of the most serious diseases dogs and cats can get in North America. Oh, okay. You've likely heard of it um, because we have a dog. Yeah. It's called heartworm. Oh, yes. I am familiar with this one. This is what heartworm is, everybody. So let's learn how heartworm works. Okay, sure. Yeah. So these worms require the mosquito to be an intermediate host to complete their life cycle. Mm-hmm. The uh, the worms are transmitted by several mosquito species in the Aedes, Culex, Anopheles, and Mansonia generas. I've heard some of those. Genera. Like yeah. two weeks ago. Yeah. You remember the names, huh? I mean, Aedes and Anopheles just do a bunch of terrible things to everyone. Yeah. They're terrible. Um, so the rate of development in the mosquito is temperature dependent. So it requires about two weeks of temperatures being at or above 27 degrees Celsius. Right. Okay, so only in fairly, well, tropical or at least hot. That's why we only have to give our dog pills in the summer here. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Again, woohoo for cold weather, right? Um, below 14 degrees Celsius is like the threshold temperature, um, and development is completely halted if it ever gets that cold. Um, so transmission, yeah, it's limited to warm, warm weather. Okay. Um, so the first and second larval stages of heartworm develop within the mosquito. Okay. Once the larvae developed into the infective, like, third stage, that's when the mosquito is going to bite and inject them through the saliva into the dog, cat, or, you know, human. And it deposits the larvae under the skin. They grow for another week or two. They molt into fourth stage larvae. That's when they migrate to the muscles of the chest and abdomen. 45 to 60 days later, they molt to the fifth stage. Okay. So between 75 and 120 days after something is infected, the immature heartworms are going to enter the bloodstream, um, be carried through to the heart, into the pulmonary artery, and they're going to stop there and set up shop. Then they're just going to start growing for three to four months. They're just going to grow and grow and grow. Female adult worm grows to about 30 centimeters in length. Wow. It's pretty long. Yeah. The male's about 23 centimeters, but kind of big curled up tail so you don't get that whole length and yeah okay um so about seven months after infection is when the adult worms are going to mate they're going to start giving birth to live young called microphylari and those are going to start circulating in the bloodstream which is when mosquitoes can pick them up again and you know restart the cycle so heartworms can live for like five to seven years in a dog wow that um long. yeah and the microphylari can circulate for as long as two years so it's hard to interrupt that transmission cycle. Yeah. Um, so besides Dyrophilaria imitis, the most commonly seen species in humans um, are Dyrophilaria repens, tenuous, and more rarely striata ursi and subdermata. Um, so there is like a new one, we think, that was just recently detected infecting humans in Hong Kong. So they proposed it's a new species and they're going to Try to name it Dyrophilaria hongkonensis. Hmm. I thought there was some pushback on thing. Well, diseases being named after places. This is a species. This is a species, though. Yeah, yeah. and it's a Latin name, not a common name. So okay. no one's right. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. You can name it anything you want if you discover it. Sure. Pretty much. Fun. <laughs> I'm sure there are some boundaries, but you can name it after your wife. You can name it after your oh, kid. You can name you can name it whatever you want. 
Um, so human dyrofilariasis is generally, it's either pulmonary dyrofilariasis, that's what's caused by the imitis one I mentioned, because I'm tired of saying dyrofilaria. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, or the other ones cause subcutaneous dyrofilariasis. So it just kind of sits under your skin, under your skin and doesn't yeah. migrate to, you know, pulmonary to the lung area. So it just stays in like a, a pocket under your skin, basically, or an area. Yeah. Okay. So um, in humans, pulmonary dyrofilariasis um, happens like, so the worms will die, basically, and plug up the... Well, not plug up. They go in the pulmonary artery. Um, they make these little granulomas because your immune system is going to kind of Fight uh, them. wall them up into like a cyst. That's a granuloma, okay. like a little small nodule. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they just look like coin-sized lesions um, on a chest x-ray. And they don't really um, do anything. Like, they don't have symptoms in humans. Oh. Really. Um, not even like decreased like heart function or? Right. So... Most people have no symptoms. If okay. you do have symptoms, it's going to be like a cough. Some people do cough up blood. Um, chest pain, fever, pleural effusion, which is like excess fluid um, in the chest cavity, basically. Okay. Um, but the biggest issue really is that like they find these lesions on an x-ray, on a chest x-ray for some other reason. And then they're like, uh-oh, because you don't know what they are on an x-ray. Right. So then you have to go and do invasive, Ooh. like, biopsies or testing to make sure it's not something bad, like cancer. Mm-hmm. So really, that's actually the bigger concern is like, oh, we're doing these invasive procedures we didn't have to do. It's not... They don't often actually cause any big Ooh. symptoms. Okay. Um, so subcutaneous or pulmonary, whatever it is, usually we treat it by surgical removal of the... Lesions of the granulomas. So, I mean... Um, no medication, nothing like that. Yeah, the subcutaneous, like the under-the-skin one, seems like a much easier fix or, like, route to recovery. Yeah, really no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, we're going to go kind of from more boring to, or, you know, less common to more right. interesting and more common. Okay. So, now we've, you know, hit the more interesting ones. Because um, there is only four, by the way. So we're on, oh. we're on three or four already. Wow, we're going quick. No longer. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, because now we have something a little more common and impactful on humans, which is called lymphatic filariasis. Okay. So it's... It's like lymph nodes? Yeah, definitely rela- related. So okay. um, it's commonly called elephantiasis, but that's not accurate. Hmm. So, yes, in areas where filariasis is endemic, the most common cause of elephantiasis is lymphatic filariasis. Okay. But they're not the same thing. Right. One causes the other, but other things can cause elephantiasis, which have no mosquito involvement whatsoever. Right. So, like STDs. For example, lymphogranuloma venereum can cause elephantiasis. Tuberculosis can cause elephantiasis. Uh, repeat strep infections, leprosy, exposure to certain minerals like silica, um, even other infectious diseases like another parasitic disease called leishmaniasis. Those can all cause elephantiasis. So to say that they're the same thing is incorrect. Right. Got it. Um, so lymphatic filariasis, like dyrofilariasis, not shockingly, is caused by a filarial parasite. So again, small and thread-like is what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Again, it's a nematode. It's a roundworm. Um, the major cause, which is responsible for 90% of cases in humans, is Usheria uh, bancrofti. Usheria. That's how I'm going to say it. Is that a mosquito? No, it's a roundworm. Oh, that's... Okay. That's the the nematode. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Wu I got it. Good job. I just have to try it a few times in a row. Um, so it affects over 120 million people. That's a lot. Primarily in Central Africa, the Nile Delta, South and Central America, and, you know, the more tropical Asian regions. Um, Pacific Islands, you know. Yeah. Warm places. Yeah. Uh, so the main vectors of Wuchereria bancrofti are mosquitoes in the Culex genus. Um, that's kind of like in the urban areas. And then also Anopheles and Aedes. Mm, our Again, favorites. the big ones, yeah. So um, most of the rest of lymphatic filariasis cases are caused by Brugia malayi. And then there's a small percentage caused by Brugia timori. So... Brugia malayi is transmitted by Mansonia mosquitoes, and it's only in South, like, Southeast Asia. Sure. And then Brugia timori, so far, is only found um, in the lesser Sunda islands of Indonesia. Okay. So they did a study um, in, a, in a village, a Mainang village, um, in one of these islands, and they found microfilari of this worm. In 157 of 586 people that lived there. Wait, say it again. 587 out of how many? 157 out of 586 people that lived there. Oh, so oh okay, okay. They okay. found the microfilari in 27% of everyone that lived in the village. Yeah, wow. And um, 13% of them already had like lymphedema, like swelling of the lymph tissues of their legs. So um, it's only in this one area, but it's bad there sure so how does the disease work okay like in dyrophiloriasis the first few larval stages are going to develop inside the mosquito gut yeah um and i'm assuming that's the only place that it develops like are there yeah. other animals that do this as well it's the mosquito is their intermediate host they need okay. they need to be in the mosquito to do this part yep um the third stage larva like same as the other ones are injected into the person with the saliva they're going to migrate to the lymphatic vessels and develop into adult worms there. Okay. Got it. So the adults are going to obstruct the flow of lymph fluid through the body. Um, they're going to just start breeding periodically. Whenever they do, they'll release the microfilari, and those are going to migrate through the blood and lymph symptoms systems throughout your body. Um, and the disease itself is complicated because it's kind of an interplay between the worms inside the immune system from our own bodies. Sure. Like what its reaction is. Um, and then there's a bunch of opportunistic infections that arise from having a blocked lymphatic system. Sure. Because um, if you weren't yeah. sure what I'm talking about, the lymphatic system, its main job is in the immune system and also in the circulatory system. Uh, so it's really important that we have that working correctly. Um so there is evidence that lymphatic filariasis dates back at least 4,000 years. I'm, I'm sure it's older, but yeah. um, written evidence. So there's an ancient Vedic text called the Rig Veda, which was composed like 1500 to 1200 BCE, kind of around there. Um, and they possibly reference 
elephantiasis, we think. Okay. Um, in the 50th hymn of the seventh book, they call on the gods Mitra, Varuna, and Agni for protection against, quote, that which nests inside and swells. Then the author asks the deities to not let the worm wound his foot. Um, and the disease then is described as causing eruptions to appear on the ankles and the knees. So elephantiasis and a worm. So we think that that, you know, was a reference to lymphatic filariasis. Okay. Um, there's artifacts from ancient Egypt dating to around 2000 BCE. Uh, artifacts from the Nok civilization in West Africa from 500 BCE, all showing possible elephantiasis uh, symptoms. Um, so the first very clear reference we have for the disease occurs from the Greeks. So the scholars are differentiating between the symptoms of lymphatic filariasis and leprosy, which can appear um, similar because of the thickening of skin that you get. Um, so they define leprosy as elephantiasis grecorum in these texts, and then lymphatic filariasis is called elephantiasis arabum. So, like arabum, I guess. Okay. I I struggle to know what the roots of those words mean. So Greece different... and Arabia. Oh, location. I think so. Okay. I think so. Um, basically, now we're kind of like, okay, we knew you were talking about elephantiasis, but, but like I said, it's caused by other things. So now we're like, oh, okay, you're saying that you know it's caused by... This or by that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Or think. Maybe not Yeah. Know. The best of their knowledge, at least. So, talking about the Greeks, when we're talking about old medicine... So, Pliny? Pliny. Pliny? I looked up what Pliny has to say about the matter. What did Pliny have to say about it, though? Ah. <laughs> Bugs me. Okay, Pliny says, asparagus root boiled down in vinegar is good for elephantiasis. Well, probably just good. Arabum. I would probably eat that. Uh, okay. Asparagus and vinegar? It. It's, sure. He doesn't... He doesn't describe what you do with it. It's plenty. Maybe you put it on the oh, your face. I don't know. Less good. Who knows? He doesn't say. He okay. does say you could chew some mint leaves up and apply those topically. That can't be that bad. So far, pretty good. You've got like yeah. pickled asparagus and mint. Yeah. Okay. But then get this. He also says, quote, This disease was originally peculiar to Egypt. Whenever it attacked the kings of that country, it was attended with peculiarly fatal effects to the people. It being the practice to temper their sitting baths with human blood for the treatment of the disease. Mm. So what I feel like he's saying there is he's heard, which probably means it's not right, but yeah. he's heard that when the disease came to Egypt, the people were like, oh no, because they're going to be slaughtered for their blood for yeah. a bath for the kings. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one treatment, apparently. That's not as good for dinner <laughs> as mint and pickled asparagus. Root. Oh, asparagus. I don't think I've eaten asparagus root. Who has? Is it? I don't know. It can't be as good as don't actual ask asparagus. Me. <laughs> okay, fine. I mean, isn't this? I don't, I don't know. Um, so we used to think that the disease only affected adults. But what we've realized now is that people tend to acquire it as children. Like, mm -hmm. And then it just very slowly progresses so that symptoms usually only appear in adults. Or like noticeable in adults. Like, yeah, but they symptoms. Yeah, but are there, like, early warning symptoms that we could identify in children? Well, here's what I wrote. Okay, let's as, hear what you wrote. As this occurs in areas with generally poor access to healthcare, maybe a minor immune changes just aren't noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
We're on the same page, I think. I, I think. Well, yes. No? Apparently so. Oh, okay. Um, so the vast majority of infected people do seem mostly asymptomatic, but if you do check, like, labs and stuff on them, you would note that all of them are suffering from damages to their lymphatic system and their kidneys or damages to their immune system. Just maybe not bad enough to produce uh, noticeable. noticeable symptoms. Yeah. Um, so, again, the adult filarial worms are causing inflammation of the lymphatic system. It's, it's going to mess things up no matter if you notice it or not. Um, so, what happens is the, especially lower limbs, but, you know, other parts of your body, um, are going to become prone to recurrent bacterial infections. Um, these are secondary infections is what they're called. And that'll provoke acute attacks, which is the most common symptom of lymphatic filariasis. So acute attacks cause, you know, lots of pain and swelling at the site, fever, chills, just, you know, feeling terrible kind of thing. Um, and then when lymphatic filariasis develops into a chronic condition, it's going to lead to, so lymphedema, so that's tissue swelling, uh, or elephantiasis, so it's like skin and tissue thickening. Okay. So, so lymphedema and elephantiasis is, is usually in the, in the limbs. Um, also hydrocele, which is swelling of the scrotum and penis area. Hmm. Um, really, really large swelling. Again, pictures. No, don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. Doesn't sound good. Um, there's also swelling and thickening and like breast tissue, genital organs. That's very common, unfortunately. And as you can imagine, that's painful. Yeah. Um, acute episodes of local inflammation involving skin, lymph nodes, lymphatic vessels, um, will kind of periodically happen with chronic elephantiasis and lymphedema. Um, and this is lots of it's caused by our own body's immune system response to the parasite. Right. Um, there's also, you know, like I said, the bacterial skin infections because you've lost immune function and, and like, it's very debilitating. Like people can't work, people can't go anywhere. Um, so lymphatic filariasis is what's known as a neglected tropical disease. Okay. As in neglected, as in these are often people without access to like good healthcare and therefore it develops over time due to neglect. Whereas if it was treated properly, it could be. We could eliminate it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, kind of. Yeah. So the WHO, it's, it's a WHO thing. They've okay. made this list of 20 diseases. Um, and the characteristics are that they mostly infect impoverished communities. They disproportionately affect women and children. Yeah. So, you know, those two things alone explain why they're neglected. Yeah. Let's be serious. <laughs> um, the diseases cause devastating health, social, and economic consequences. Uh, to a billion people, the 20 on this list, a total of a billion people. Wow. Um, dengue, by the way, is also on that list. Oh, okay. It's the only one that we've talked about that's also on that list. Um, so it causes, this one causes massive worldwide suffering. Like, you're not going to necessarily die right away from it, but it's super painful. It's profoundly disfiguring. Yeah. It doesn't get better. Like, once you have elephantiasis or lymphedema of those areas it's not going to like go back to normal after you treat someone um it's like leads to permanent disabilities like you can't work yeah so there's like a huge stigma around it so there's like mental anguish 
social, you know, ostracism. Like people can't work, so they're super poor. Yeah. And then they're poor, so they're ostracized more. Like it's like a, it's a really, yeah. really bad, uh, bad thing. So the global baseline estimate of people affected by lymphatic filariasis, um, 25 million men suffering from hydrocele. So like, you know, debilitating and painful swelling of the scrotum. Yeah. Uh, over 15 million people are suffering from lymphedema. So, yeah. <laughs> As of 2018, we had 51 million people were, like, infected symptomatically. Okay. Which is a 74% decline since the start of the WHO's global program to eliminate lymphatic filariasis, which started in 2000. Well, that sounds good. It is good. Um, so, basically, lymphatic filariasis can be eliminated by stopping the spread of infection through... Preventative chemotherapy. Okay. So they treat whole areas with these pills all at the same time, like whole all whole villages, whole areas, right? Yeah. Um, more than nine billion cumulative treatments have been delivered since two thousand. Yeah. So it's it's good. It's just not uh, you know we're not there yet. There's over eight hundred eighty-two million people in forty-four countries that are at risk of lymphatic filariasis. And all those people require preventative chemotherapy to stop the spread, right? So we have yeah. to stop transmission is, is kind of the whole goal here. So the goal is unfortunately not to treat people with it. I mean, that's part of it. But like I said, it can't really be cured yeah. so much. Um, it, it, the good part is that due to these successful WHO strategies, 740 million people no longer require the preventative chemotherapies. That is Really good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, unfortunately, these are just preventative, though. So what do we have to actually treat it? Well, we have antifilarial drug treatments to eliminate the microfilari. But they don't treat that. Like, they don't get rid of the adult worms is the problem. So only the larval stages. Correct. Again, so that stops the transmission okay. cycle, though. Um, so some of these treatments involve giving infected people antibiotics. Okay. And you might wonder why would they do that? Because nematodes are not bacteria. Uh, one would wonder that. Maybe even me. Did you wonder that? Yes. Or did I just put that question in your brain? Well, I was still putting the pieces together, but I was starting to think along those lines. Okay. Well, if you have listened to part one of our mosquitoes series, mm -hmm. then you'll remember the name Wolbachia. You will. Do you remember it ever? Y yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Okay. You said it a number of times. Okay. So just, I'll remind you. If Excellent. You're, if you're one of the people that didn't listen or just forgot because it's been a month and you don't memorize bacteria names from our podcast, how dare you? Yeah. Um. So it's an intracellular bacterium that infects like arthropods and some nematodes. Um, including the filarial worms that cause lymphatic filariasis. So Wolbachia, it turns out, is an essential symbiont for these worms. The worms require it to provide resources to grow and develop and produce their offspring and for the worms to basically just survive without worms. So, like, they need it. Yeah. So we're like, okay, kill the bacteria, stop more disease from occurring. Yep. Cool. New research published last year proved that if we target the Wolbachia, we may be able to stop giving chemotherapy. 
because the researchers discovered Wolbachia is necessary for the microfilari to develop into the infectious larva stage inside the mosquito. So you could just halt them. Right. So it turns out that Wolbachia depleted worms aren't able to shed their outer skin. So like molt. So they need an enzyme called chitinase to do the molting thing. Yeah. And it seems like the bacteria must be the one producing it. Because if you give Wolbachia-free worms some chitinase, then they're able to complete their cycle. Right. But without the Wolbachia, they can't. They can't generate it or get access to it. Right. So if we treat people with antibiotics targeting the Wolbachia and like blanket treatment, like we're doing with the blanket chemotherapies... Maybe we can prevent transmission without the risks and side effects of chemotherapy drugs, which, to be fair, the way they're doing it is it's not like cancer. You don't have to like put so much in and it's making everyone sick all the time. Yeah. But this might still be better. <laughs> sure. Um, treatment also involves managing, you know, the disabilities and morbidities that, that come along with, you know, having the elephantiasis and the lymphedema that we can't fix. Yeah. Um, you know, hygiene things, skin care, helping people exercise even though they're disabled. Uh, you know, social services, psychological services, economic support, things that, you know, you know, just quality of life measures is a big is a big deal for this. Um, of course, yeah. we have like things like that, you know. Find them a way to get more education, to work from home, to do things, you know. Social services. Um, okay. Last, and certainly not least. Mm, the most commonest? Is malaria. Oh, yeah. You probably know that one already. I have heard of this thing before. So, again, it's probably common knowledge, but malaria comes from the Italian word for bad air. Mal. I didn't know that. But mal area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's like once you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, so, this is because for a long time, people thought, you know. Yeah. Bad air made you sick. The miasma theory of disease. And in this one, you know, kind of made sense. Like, it doesn't come from swampy air like we used to think, but it certainly does come from swamps. So Right, that have that air. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, you know, they weren't super wrong. Um, so malaria is caused by parasites of the genus Plasmodium. So much easier to say. It <laughs> is. everything else. Um, which are transmitted by mosquitoes in the Anopheles genus. Only them. Um, okay. Well, I am interested in parasites, as I may have gushed about previously. So I'm going to spend some time just talking about plasmodium. Not okay. even malaria, just plasmodium. Um, so it's in the phylum Apicomplexa, just like toxoplasmosis, which we did an episode about. We did, yeah. Um, so Apicomplexans are parasitic eukaryotes, and they have this special organelle called the apical complex. And that is something it uses to enter into host cells. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Plasmodium, the genus Plasmodium, has over 200 species. They are all parasitic. They all use a vertebrate host and an insect host. Yeah. Um, and they're all, you know, specific, right? So, like, there's bird Plasmodium. and But some of them are, like, really specific, like, penguin Plasmodium. Well, probably not penguins. You know what I mean. <laughs> Oh, sure. maybe penguins. There's warm weather penguins. Anyways, I'm just saying that some can be very specific and some can be more like all primates or all right. field cats, you know. like. Um, so we don't know when Plasmodium first evolved, but we do know that they're super old. 
Um, we have found them visible in the fossil record of birds 130 million years ago, at least. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the human ones aren't that old for Makes obvious sense. reasons. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so six species are known to cause malaria in humans. And I would like to point out that when I was in school, it was only five. And a few years before that, it was only four. So, yeah. So let's just keep inventing new ones. Maybe. Okay. So, Plasmodium falciparum, Plasmodium nolesi, Plasmodium vivax, malariae, Ovalley curtisi, and Ovalley wallacheri. When I was in school, Ovalley was, uh... Just one species, and they thought that there were some subspecies. And it seems like in 2016, they did a genetic study that said, no, that these are distinct species, not subspecies of each other. Okay. Um, there does seem to be some more species emerging lately that are infecting humans. Uh, Plasmodium brazilianum, Plasmodium simium are some of them. And it might just be like, oh, new technology, we can differentiate the genetics better, like better diagnostic technologies. Yeah. Or it's humans encroaching on, you know, formerly wild spaces and we more like actual new species are jumping from monkeys to humans. Right. Which is cool. Really, really cool. Um, and one word I'm for trying it. to be sarcastic here, but that maybe sounds like I actually think it's cool because I thought parasites were cool. Well, I mean, um, it's interesting that they can. It's interesting, but not good for humans. Correct. Maybe we should not do that. It's tough. Um, so, Plasmodium falciparum is by far the most lethal in humans. It's actually the deadliest parasite of all human history, ever. Damn. Yeah. It's a, you know, good title to hold, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it must feel good about itself, yeah. So, it is a major issue in Sub-Saharan Africa. We'll talk about this more later, but 90% of falciparum cases occur in Sub-Saharan Africa. 91% of worldwide malaria deaths happen there. Wow. Um, most of them children. Yeah, okay. So uh, thanks to our genetic sequencing technologies, now we know that falciparum is less related to the other plasmodiums than each of the other ones are to each other. Like, it branches off here and they all like branch off closer Later. to each other. Yeah. So that might explain kind of why uh, it's different. Different in humans. Right. Um, so the genetic data suggests that Plasmodium falciparum is a mutated form of something called Plasmodium reichenaui, which is a chimpanzee-specific Plasmodium. Uh, and that explains, you know, like it's it transferred maybe 10,000 years ago, as recently maybe as that. And again, the other ones are not as related to falciparum, and they're much older in humans, we think. Okay. Which... Probably explains why it's so deadly to us. Um, as you might know, like, parasites generally evolve towards a more benign association with their hosts. Right, because they don't actually want to... Kill you right kill away. You. Yeah. They I want mean, they, you don't to... care, they don't care if they kill you. They just don't want to kill you before you can pass on. Right. Right. So if they kill you too quickly, that's an issue. Yeah. And another hint is that Plasmodium reichenaui, that chimp one that we think morphed into Falciparum, it's not very virulent in chimpanzees so they've likely had it as an incumbent for a, long a while time, and it yeah. evolved kind of to be less virulent in them yeah yeah but so, in this new environment or new host yeah we, it hasn't yeah. we haven't adjusted it we haven't adjusted enough yet it hasn't adjusted you know that kind of thing right yeah exactly 
So I wrote fun fact here. I don't know if anyone will think it's fun but me. But they did these studies where they kind of watched mosquitoes bite under, like, really high-powered microscopes. Okay. And what they found was that plasmodium-infected mosquitoes will spend a lot more time probing for blood vessels than non-infected ones. Like, again, if you remember back a month ago to the first part, we talked about how mosquitoes miss a lot. Yeah. Like, a lot. They're not that great at finding blood vessels. Right. Um, So, clearly the plasmodium-infected ones don't give up as easy, though. And we don't know why this is. Like, the parasite could be controlling the mosquito's nervous system. It could change the activity of genes in the mouth parts. Those are some of the hypotheses. Um, But, yeah, either way, infected mosquitoes just don't give up. (laughs) <laughs> which means their odds of passing on the parasite are Increased. much higher. So yeah. plasmodium is doing something to change its host to get itself passed on, which I think is super cool. Well, it can, yeah, anything that increases success, right? Parasites are cool. Yeah. But it's jerk, and we don't like plasmodium because malaria is bad. Okay. The life cycle is complicated of plasmodium. They, um, you know, s- same type of thing where they need the gut to do some of the maturing and then they do some inside of humans. Okay. We'll talk about the life cycle in humans, but so, you know, mosquito is going to bite you. It's going to inject something called sporozytes and the sporozytes are very mobile. So after about one to three hours, they're going to start migrating through the bloodstream. Then they're going to start entering liver, liver cells. Okay. Yeah. So one single sporozyte is going to replicate in its liver cell and produce thousands of something called merozoites. 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 Uh, That takes like two days to 14 days, depending on which species we're talking about here. Um, So Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium ovale are going to do something additional at this stage. And they're going to make what are called hypnozoites. Hypnozoites are like a dormant form. That is going to remain in liver cells. Okay. And wait there like a ticking time bomb. Oh, good. And they're responsible for relapse of malaria symptoms weeks or months or even years after you think you've recovered. Damn. Uh Uh-huh. So back to the merozoites. The merozoites are going to enter red blood cells. And they're going to start multiplying in there. So plasmodium is complicated because they have these two separate replication sites and events, um, which most parasites do not have. Right. Um, When they multiply, they're going to release more merozoites, which are going to invade more red blood cells. This is when you start showing symptoms. That makes sense. Um, This is why sickle cell and other blood disorders are actually protective against malaria, because when a blood cell cell is shaped differently, then, then they're not able to really get into it or replicate properly inside of it. Right. It just is unfortunate that those things are also very bad hindering. side effects. <laughs> yeah. Um, hindering the oxygen and other carrying capacities of the red blood cells. Yeah. Um, so during this red blood cell stage, some parasites, some of the merozoites are programmed to transform into the male and female gametocytes, um, which are then the infective forms that are picked up in the blood by the mosquito. Inside the mosquito gut, sexual reproduction takes place. And for a while, it's a diploid organism. You know, two copies of each chromosome. Yeah. Which is crazy. And then it goes back to haploid again. But hmm. it's a it's a crazy little parasite. Um, it's really tough to deal with. Sure. So 
symptoms are going to start usually within 10 to 15 days of getting bitten by the infected mosquito, right? Because the plasmodium needs that time to progress to that red blood cell stage. Yep. Um, the most common early symptoms, fever, headache, extreme fatigue, chills. Uh, symptoms are going to be mild for some people, especially if you've had a previous malaria infection. Right. So severe symptoms, though, you get fluid in the lungs, which is pulmonary edema. Spleen can get really big and it can even rupture. And that's bad. That is bad. So yeah. if, if your spleen ruptures, it's the most likely of all your abdominal organs to cause life-threatening internal bleeding. Um, which I had looked this up. I was like, why is this? Well, I didn't know that it's the most vascularized organ in the body. Really? Yes. So it stores and filters 25 to 30% of your red blood cells and platelets at any given time. So if it starts bleeding, you just you just bleed. Yeah. Um, what else can happen? You can go into renal failure. Also good. Uh, you can go into shock, hmm. impaired consciousness, seizures. There's lots of bad things. Um, so it's really important to get quick diagnosis and treatment. Sounds like it, yeah. Plasmodium falciparum malaria can progress to severe illness and death within 24 hours of showing symptoms. Holy cow, that's fast. Yeah, it's bad. Falciparum's bad. Hmm. The other one's not as likely to kill you. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is interesting. This is this is why I do this podcast. I learned so much in history of malaria. I bet. I learned about the history of malaria. Um, so because of the classic cyclical fevers malaria causes, because of how it replicates and then puts out more merozoids and then more merozoids yeah. and you know and also, those other ones that do the hypnozoids yeah. anyways it's 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 uh and the enlarged spleen they're very um it's hard to confuse for other things okay so we think um because of that we've had it for a really long time because when people don't have to name it they can just write about these symptoms and we'll be like mm, sounds like we, malaria we, right, we understand. there's not a lot of other things that are like that really high fever you seem to get better now you're not better anymore. Really high fever, you know, on and on. So um, references to what we think is malaria, or are almost sure, occur in a Chinese document from about 2700 BCE, from clay tablets from Mesopotamia about 2000 BCE, some Egyptian papyri from about 1570 BCE, and Hindu texts back to the 6th century BCE. So we found a lot of written evidence um, there's also physical evidence that the ancient Egyptians had malaria in the form of DNA. So, Tutankhamun, I can say this, Tutankhamun. Good job. <laughs> was a pharaoh. Also good job. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you've heard of him. I have. In fact, I've mentioned him on the podcast before. Yeah. If I could just say his name, because every time I try to mention him, it always takes me a few tries. Um he ruled during ancient Egypt's New Kingdom era about 3,300 years ago. So he ascends to the throne at age of nine, and he rules for about 10 years and dies at age around 19, 1324 BCE, we think. Math checks out. <laughs> yeah. So a study published in 2010 found plasmodium DNA in King Tut's mummified remains, as well as four other mummies that were related to Tutankhamun. Um, and that's our oldest genetic evidence of malaria. Wow. So, in fact, the researchers found the DNA of more than one strain of Plasmodium falciparum, which means Tut had malaria more than once. So, this study concludes malaria is the best guess for the cause of death of King Tut. 
Oh, okay, sure. Possibly combined with some bone necrosis. But mostly the malaria. Bone necrosis doesn't sound, you know. But it doesn't often kill you by itself. Anyways, sure. malaria killed King Tut. I'm declaring it. Wow. Okay, you heard it here. Probably. <laughs> so, there's some recent immunological molecular techniques that have unambiguously confirmed malaria is at least 4,800 years old in humans. I mean, it's funny. Like, we, we, we've got these studies that say it probably diverged 10,000 years ago. Like, whatever. Yeah. We know it probably existed, but we have found but evidence, actual evidence. Yeah. It's at least 4,800 years old. Um, so, the early Greeks wrote about it. Homer in 850 BCE. Empedocles of Agrigentum in 550 BCE. And Hippocrates as well in 400. Um, they wrote about, you know, poor health, cyclical fevers, enlarged spleens. Of people that lived in marshy places. Ah, that yes. also sounds recognizable. The Romans, feeling very, you know, good about themselves, called it the Roman fever. Hmm. Um, Pope Gregory the Fourth, in response to the Roman fever being more prevalent in warmer times, yeah, he actually moved All Saints' Day because of this from May to November. Ah, good way to protect his people. I. Do you know what All Saints Day is? No. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I grew up Catholic, so I assume everyone knew it. Well, you know, people that were saintly, and we want to, you know, make sure that we uh, talk about all of them. I'm going to call myself out here. I grew up Catholic, but I don't don't do it anymore. And I don't know what All Saints Day is, except for saints. Okay. I just know it was the day after Halloween. Oh, is it? And I felt like, yeah, November. November 1st. And it was like... Is this just an excuse for teachers not have to deal with kids on the day after Halloween so they give you a holiday? Seems like a perfectly good That's what reason I to have a holiday. But clearly it's very much older than that, so I don't know. <laughs> and it used to be in May. Used to be in May. Hmm. Um, so the Romans also believed it came from the air, the, specifically the swamp air, which, hmm. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... So one of their solutions it's... was move away from the swamps. This makes sense. It's a good idea. Yeah. Wrong reason, but good idea. Um, like I said, remember last time or two times ago, we talked about the Pontine swamps sure in Italy, in near Rome specifically. Yeah, they're very that marshy. Were reflooded. It's very later. marshy. Um, Shakespeare wrote about malaria. He referred to it as ague, which is what it was called at that time of history. Okay. Um, as well as marsh fever. Makes sure. sense. Yeah. So Shakespeare refers to ague, malaria, in nine different places. Really. In Julius Caesar, Caesar tells Caius Ligarius, Caesar was ne'er so much your enemy as that same ague which hath made you lean. In hmm. King John, Constance says, But now will Canco Sorrow eat my bud and chase the native beauty from his cheek, and he will look as hollow as a ghost, as dim and meager as an ague's fit. This is confusing because so many of those words don't make sense to me, but um, just thought I'd throw that in there. But they're mentioned. It says it. Yeah. Um, it also is referenced in King or in Henry VIII, King Lear, Macbeth, The Merchant of Venice, Richard II, The Tempest, and Troilus and Cressida, which I did not know there was a play called Troilus and Cressida, but I I've heard of the rest of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 1880 is when we discovered plasmodium parasites in the blood of malaria patients. In 1898, Italian malariologists, which, yes, used to be a job because it was a big deal, yeah, um, conclusively demonstrated human malaria is transmitted by Anopheline mosquitoes. Um, we discovered that they entered the liver first and developed in 1948. And finally, 
we discovered the whole dormant stages in liver thing in 1982. Quite recently, yeah. Right. Um, so treatment. Let's start with the old fake ones. Oh, fun. And then we'll move on to the real ones. Mm, I mean, probably better for us, but likely less fun. Oh, it's definitely less fun. I'm going to pre-apologize if you don't like when I talk about Pliny, but I'm going to read so much Pliny because it's <laughs> so funny. Uh, I'm assuming that he shows up here as well. Yeah, like so much. Excellent. Okay, so in Egypt, the builders of the pyramids were given a lot of garlic, and we think that was an attempt to protect them from malaria. Or just because it's good. It's not what we think. Okay, that's fine. Okay, okay. I mean, I think it's good. We're already Even if get, they don't think it's we're good. We're going to get into plenty already, because I can't wait. Okay, okay. plenty. I'm just going to quote all. I'm just directly quoting, okay? okay. Ready? In the treatment of quartan fevers, which is what malaria fevers were called, um, clinical medicine is, so to say, pretty nearly powerless. Okay. So he knew that much, yeah. Yeah. For which, well, I mean, none of their medicines did anything, but for which reason we shall insert a considerable number of remedies recommended by professors of the magic art. Oh. And okay. first of all, those prescribed to be worn as amulets. The dust, for instance, in which a hawk has bathed itself, tied up in a linen cloth with a red string and attached to the body. But what if a hawk, like, bathed in water instead of dust or something? No, you would have they to don't get their feathers around. wet on purpose. It's a Some hawk. birds do. A hawks a don't. Hawk. Not a hawk. Not a hawk. They don't have waterproof feathers. They don't want to get wet up. That's why they bathe in dust. Great. Okay. <sighs> okay, I'm back to quoting, okay? The longest tooth of a black dog or the wasp known by the name of pseudosphex which is always to be seen flying alone caught with the left hand and attached beneath the patient's chin some use for this purpose the first wasp that a person sees in the current year oh some use for this purpose the first wasp a person sees in the current year maybe not everyone uses the first wasp i don't know i don't know what he's trying to say there but other amulets are a viper's head severed from the body and wrapped in a linen cloth a viper's heart removed from the reptile while still alive, the muzzle of a mouse and the tips of its ears wrapped in red cloth, the animal being set at liberty after they are removed. This is just mean. These are all mean. Um, The right eye plucked from a living lizard and enclosed with the head separated from the body in goat skin. Or the scarabinus that also form pellets and roll them along. So we're talking about dung beetles. Dung beetles, yeah. Yeah. Anyways... There are so many more amulets listed, and like I want to just keep reading plenty forever, but I'm not going to, unfortunately. Check out a natural history book thirty, chapter thirty. I find it so funny how so many of them involve being specific about what hand you catch things with, or there's some parts where it says to make sure the patient does or does not see certain parts of the amulet. Careful that they don't see the sting of the scorpion, but the fate. Anyways, it's just a wow. it's so funny. Okay, back to plenty. Another amulet suggestion was to quote. Write down on papyrus the word abracadabra and repeat it many times, moving down the paper, but each time remove the final letter from the line so that more and more of the letters of the word are missing and mark the others until there is only one letter in the last line of the diagram at the apex Ah. of a comb. Yeah. Yeah. Remember to tie it around one's neck with a linen thread. What? Oh, uh, he's just prescribing homework for school kids. Um... I'm so curious now about the origin of the word abracadabra. I had no idea that it was used in Roman times for magic spells. I, I really need to yeah. I really need to know when abracadabra this is not the time. Okay. But one day I'm gonna find out 
where abracadabra came from because I can't believe that this is a thing for malaria or just a thing in general. Yeah. But moving on to non-amulet suggestions. Wow. I'm still going to talk about Pliny because okay. it's too funny. Okay. You had other ones. Got it. Pliny says, quote, In other cases, again, it is the practice to enclose a spotted lizard in a little box and to place it beneath the pillow of the patient, taking care to set it at liberty when the fever abates. It is recommended also that the patient should swallow the heart of a sea diver, removed from the bird without the aid of iron, it being first dried and then bruised and taken in warm water. The heart of a swallow is also recommended with honey, and there are persons who say that just before the paroxysms come on, so like the chills, yeah. the patient should take one drachma of swallow's dung in three kayathi of goat's milk or ewe's milk or of raisin wine. Others, again, are of opinion that the birds themselves should be taken whole. Wow. The nations of Parthia, as a remedy for coarsen fevers, take the skin of the asp in doses of one-sixth of a denarius with an equal quantity of pepper. Wow. So the skin of a snake with pepper. Equal. Equal. I just feel that, like... It's so specific, and it's so... Spotted lizard in a little box under the pill, like... Yeah, yeah. Anyways, I'm sorry I had to say so much plenty, but it's so funny. Please, wow. please go look up. And, and, and don't try any of the cures either. <laughs> Do you really think you got to tell people that? I don't know. Was someone going to go catch a wasp with their left hand with Maybe. the first wasp of the season, but only... Okay. Yeah. It's too good. It's too good. Um, so, as, <laughs> as for more legitimate treatments, sorry to play, um, we're going to go way back to the ancient Chinese writings about malaria, mm-hmm. where they recommend a certain herb called the Arte- Artemisia herb. Um, and what's interesting about this is that it's the basis of the best treatments that we use today for malaria. And I'm going to get Great. that. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, the recommendation of using this herb for malaria is from a book called Emergency Prescriptions Kept in One Sleeve. Yeah. Okay. They have big sleeves. Yeah, I was going to say it. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the Western world, though, until the 1600s, our treatments for malaria uh, were just like our treatments for everything else. Hmm. they did nothing bleeding uh bloodletting yep laxatives things that made you puke and pee and spells and chants and prayers and astrology you know all that um but it was really so the spanish conquerors conquistadors that returned from south america they took a treatment that had been discovered by the Quechua people who are native to peru bolivia ecuador in the andes yep um, and they, they popularized it in Europe. So the Quechua people found the bark of a certain tree was very effective in treating fevers and what they called the shivers. Yeah. Was it a willow tree of some sort? No, that's aspirin. Yeah. Okay. So it was very effective in treating malaria, even if they didn't know they were treating malaria. Um, the bark was from the cinchona tree. Okay. It's also called the fever tree and the Jesuit, it's called Jesuit bark, you know, because the Jesuit missionaries were <laughs> the ones that brought it back. But um, so the story, which is probably apocryphal, I don't think it actually happened like this, but there was an earthquake and a bunch of cinchona trees fall into a lake, and then the water in the lake is really bitter and no one wants to drink it. Except this one dude, he's so sick. I have heard a very similar story to this. Keep going. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. you have. He's so sick he can't really go get other water. So he right. has to drink this gross water. Yep. And he drinks it and then he gets better. Yay. Right. So um, that's tonic water. Yeah. So I don't know why people like it. In this story, no one wanted to drink it because it was gross, but okay. Tonic water's delicious. I don't like it. 
<laughs> a lot of people agree with you. Yeah. But a lot of people agree with me. So, you know. Well, the healthy people agree with me because, you know. Oh. We're getting cured, obviously. Okay. But we'll talk in a second about how you don't want to drink too much tonic water because quinine is also poisonous. But yeah. anyways, the Spanish observed the, the Quechua people's use of cinchona and they were aware it had medicinal properties by at least the seven or the 1570s. Obviously, these people have been using it much earlier. We don't know when. Right. Um, they introduced it to Spain as early as 1636. Like I said, the Jesuit missionaries did that. Um, so quinine is the active ingredient here. It was first isolated in 1820. It wasn't until 1944 that it was chemically synthesized. And it played a significant role in the colonization of Africa by Europeans, unfortunately. Sure. Um, so... The availability of quinine for malaria treatment has been said to be the prime reason Africa ceased to be known as the white man's grave. Interesting. Yeah. So the issue with quinine is that there is a whole ton of side effects and it has a very narrow therapeutic window, which means that, you know, a little too much and you're going to get really sick and not enough and it won't work. Got it. Um, if you take too much, you can get dizzy, ringing in the ears, vision changes, headaches, irregular heart rhythm, seizures, blindness, death. All that stuff. So be careful not to drink too much tonic water was what I was going to say. Wow. Yeah, which is, thanks. Uh, which is a joke because you'd have to really drink a lot of tonic water sure. to get that much quinine. But there's also apparently like a lot of, you know, over-the-counter, not great regulated supplements um, that have quinine in them. So watch out for supplements. Really? Yeah. Okay. The first person, it's a fun story. The first person who tried to synthesize quinine, it was hard for us to synthesize, was William Henry Perkin. And he failed to make quinine, but he succeeded in making a beautiful purple dye. And he called it Perkins Mauve, and he got out of that business and started a dye business. Well, and I mean... And he got rich from that. His yeah. life gives you lemons. Then or- a guy named Paul Ehrlich tried to synthesize it, and he came up with methylene blue, which oh. didn't have the same side effects as quinine, but it wasn't as consistent in, consistent in treating malaria. Um, and it would also turn you blue if mm-hmm. it took enough, if you took enough of it for it to be effective as a treatment. Sure. Then you'd be blue. So then the scientists at Bayer, uh, specifically a Wilhelm Ruhl, decided we needed a different medicine. So he makes something called quinacrine, also called mepacrine or adabrine. And it worked well enough that they, it was one of the predominant things we used during World War II for malaria. Um, but it still had a lot of side effects. Um, Seizures, ringing in the ears. Uh, some other ones, though, like psychosis, which oh. is still a problem with malarial medications today. Psychosis. Oh, it is? Yes. Okay. Um, but it also, unfortunately, turned you colors. Uh, yellow. This one was yellow. I don't know why all these things turn you colors, but they all did, which is why I included this story. Um, so eventually we figure out how to make a medicine that didn't turn you colors. And that is, so chloroquine. It had been in the works at Bayer prior to World War II. They were giving people quinacrine, it turned them yellow, and they had already made chloro, uh, chloroquine. Sure. But they thought that it was too toxic to give to people, so they didn't even consider it. They just hmm. put it on the shelves, they didn't give it to people. Um, but, you know, after the war, they were like, look at all these side effects, maybe let's take a second look at chloroquine. And then they realized, okay... This is much better. It didn't turn your color. Is let's use this one. It became really popular over the next two decades. Um, they added on a hydroxyl group to one of the rings to produce 
hydroxychloroquine. Oh, okay. Fun. Which you probably know that we still use today. Yeah. Um, and not for COVID. Um, <laughs> sorry, yes. had to say it. Um, our best treatments these days, though, for severe malaria are based on, like I said, the Ar- Artemisia herb that the Chinese right. used to use. So it was rediscovered by Chinese scientists, um, and it's been amazingly helpful. So this story begins in the 1960s, basically because of the Vietnam War. So malaria was really rebounding in Asia. Plasmodium was becoming resistant to the you know quinine, chloroquine. Um, North Vietnam is in a jungle warfare, and lots yeah. of mosquitoes live there. Yeah, malaria was popular in that place. Right. So they asked China for help developing new anti-malaria medications. Um, China launched a secret program to investigate chemical and traditional Chinese medicines. They did make some new chemical options to deliver them to the battlefield. Uh, and then they discovered the artemisinin, um, like the herb, the derivatives of it, other drugs you could combine with them. So the artemisinin, sinin, yeah, is derived from a common plant, uh, Sweet wormwood is what we call it. In Chinese, it's Qing Hao. Um, and like I said, it's been used for more than 2,000 years in China. The earliest record from 168 BC was written on a piece of silk. They found it in a tomb. And it was recommended at that point for hemorrhoid therapy. Oh, um, like not malaria. Right. Okay. A 4th century manuscript was the first thing that we found that says it's for malaria. And so it advised people to soak a handful of it in two liters of water, strain the liquid, and then drink. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So China first used the artemisinin-based drugs on the battlefield in 1979, and they didn't share any of this information with the West during the Cultural Revolution. I mean, that's not too um, surprising. Until when the Cultural Revolution ended, then the news began to slowly emerge, and then the scientists in other countries got wind of what was going on and started to investigate it and synthesize new drugs. Um, so as of 2006, quinine is not recommended by the World Health Organization as a first line treatment for malaria because of the resistance. And now there are way better things that don't have so many side effects. Um, they only recommend using it when the artemisinins are not available. Um, so chloroquine is still recommended for plasmonium vivax, uh, where there's not resistance to it. Uh, a drug called primaquine is added to the main treatment to prevent the relapse of like the hypnozoite things yep. of Vivexino Valley. Um, but yeah, most of them are just the artemisinin based things and they combine a few medications together. But um, unfortunately, over the last decade, there's some partial resistance to the artemisinin kind of drugs that's kind of emerging in the greater Mekong subregion. So like in that Vietnam type area. Um the WHO is really concerned about this, actually. Well, that makes <laughs> um, sense, yeah. Recently, there's been reports about resistance, partial resistance in Africa, in Eritrea, Rwanda, Uganda. So, um, yeah, that's not good. No. Yeah. Um, so, falciparum and Vivax are the ones that are the greatest threat to humans. Falciparum because it's so deadly, and Vivax just because it's very infectious, and it infects a lot of people, but it's not as deadly. Right. Yeah. Um, so according to the latest malaria report, there are 247 million cases in 2021. That's compared to the 245 million cases in 2020. So unfortunately, it was going up. Slightly, yeah. 
um, deaths 619,000 in 2021 compared to 625,000 in 2020. So that went down a little bit. Sure. But basically over COVID, there the, things got all disrupted. All the programs people were trying to run, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, 13 million more cases and 63,000 more deaths occurred than predicted probably we think because of the COVID related. Sure. Things. Just like the shutdown of programs or the, you know, loss of progress or. Can't get hydroxychloroquine for some reason, you know, oh, things I like that. Why. Yeah. yeah. Um, so again, the tough thing is that most deaths occur in children under five pregnant people. It's really bad. Immune compromised. Yeah. Really bad. If your HIV is unmanaged, it's really bad, which unfortunately happens a lot in Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Um, so in 2021, the WHO has said nearly half the world's population is at risk of malaria. Wow, half. Yeah. So the WHO African region is like disproportionately higher, like impacted than anywhere else. Um, in 2021, the African region is home to 95% of all malaria cases, 96% of all deaths. Um, children under five years of age are 80% of all the malaria deaths in the African region. Um, Holy cow. But this is going to stun you even more. So four countries in Africa are over half the malaria deaths in the world. So it's, it's Nigeria has 31.3% of the malaria deaths in the world. Holy cow. Wow. Okay. Democratic Republic of the Congo, Congo 12.6%. United Republic of Tanzania is at 4.1% and Niger's at 3.9%. Um, so, you know, just to end this off, maybe on a more, you know, better note. Sure. <laughs> prevention. Let's talk about prevention um, and elimination okay. of malaria. So, like all the things we've discussed the last two episodes, the main goal is to just prevent getting bitten by a mosquito. Right. So since Anopheles are at least night-biting mosquitoes, at least so far, because that seems to maybe be changing too, um, the best prevention is insecticide-treated bed, bed nets. nets. Yeah. yeah. Um, window screens, protective clothing, proper insecticides, you know, vector control, not having standing water, treating areas with insecticides. Like I said, DDT may be bad for the environment, but in some places where you're having 31% of the malaria deaths, sometimes those things are Sure, you can weigh those things. Wise. Yeah. Yes. Um, obviously the real goal here is development of a vaccine. And there's a lot of reasons why a malaria vaccine is so hard to develop. The like really complex life cycle I was talking about, the fact that there's so many types of plasmodium, there's so many strains of falciparum, there's so many different small changes they can have on their DNA. Like they evolve so rapidly, right. they resist so many things. Um, we just don't know how, what they're doing in the body still exactly. Anyways. When I was in school 10 years ago, they were like, this is impossible. Like, not impossible, but they're like, this is so tough. We don't know when it's ever going to happen. Since October 2021, the WHO is recommending the broad use of what's called the RTSS-AS01 malaria vaccine. Okay. Brad named Moscarix among children. It's just, this one is just recommended for children living in regions with moderate to high falciparum transmission. Okay. Um, the vaccine is shown to significantly reduce like the severity. So maybe it's not great. You're still going to get it, but like 30% less people will die or kids. I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not okay. great, but it's like, do it. It's a step. The tough part is that you need to get full coverage of four doses. Um, a lot. so as of April, 2023, one and a half million children in Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi have received at least one injection. More than four and a half million doses have been administered. Um, the next nine countries are going to receive over the next two years. So it's Benin, Burkina Faso, Burundi, Cameroon, 
Congo, Liberia, Niger, Sierra Leone, and Uganda. Um, but there is other research. There's more vaccines in development. So the most effective malaria vaccination, like vaccine um, that's being developed so far is called R21 or Matrix M. It's got a 77% efficacy rate in the initial trials, um, which is way better than this RTSS one. Um, it's the first vaccine that's met the WHO's goal, which is at least 75% efficacy. Okay. So it's not, it's like in phase three trials, so it hasn't been technically approved. But in, in April of 2023, Ghana's FDA approved the use of it for children between five months and three years old. And Nigeria has also provisionally approved it again, because like, it's better to just do something, right? Sure. Is what the thought is here. Yeah. Um, so elimination Fewer than 1,000 indigenous cases, like locally transmitted cases. Um, 35 countries have reported fewer than 1,000 indigenous cases in 2021. And that's up from 33 countries in 2020. And that was up from just 13 in 2000. Okay, that's progress. Yeah. So there's countries that also have three consecutive years of zero indigenous cases. And then they apply for the WHO certification of elimination of malaria. Um, so since 2015, there's been nine countries that are officially certified malaria-free. So there's Maldives in 2015, Sri Lanka and Kyrgyzstan in 2016, Paraguay and Uzbekistan in 2018, Argentina and Algeria in 2019, China in 2021, and El Salvador in 2021. So Great. yay for that. That's my positive note that I will leave everyone on after I've talked for way too long about parasites and I'm sorry but I had to say all that stuff by plenty. Of course. I had to do it. There was, there was no option there. Yeah. But also go look at book 30, chapter 30 of natural history please. Of course. Um, so next time um, if it's something that interests you I think I'm going to research some famous Canadian shipwrecks. Mm, um, I would like that, yeah. And find out some stuff that I want to know. Yeah, and how many mosquitoes are on those boats. <laughs> uh, it's, it's too cold here, don't worry. <laughs> um, so once again, we have an email address, teach me something for, that is the number, not the word, yeah. at gmail.com. I should just put like teach me something podcast. Anyways, hindsight, teach me something for at gmail.com. Send us some emails. I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this incredibly long podcast. (laughs) Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Bye.